Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Inspirational women are increasingly popular in the news and media, but many go unheard and their stories are never told. Women to Watch with Susan Rocco captures the stories of many women who truly make a difference. Women to Watch is the vehicle for developing new leaders, encouraging younger generations, and in building self-esteem for future entrepreneurs. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome back to another week of Women to Watch here on WWDB Talk 860. My name is Sue Rocco, and I have a couple of uh, quick show notes before we get started today. And the first, and one that I am most excited about, is that I have someone joining me today that's going to be an ongoing contributor to the show and my new co-host. And her name is Dr. Beth Bachman-Dupree. Beth is the medical director of the Integrative Medicine Program at Holy Redeemer Health System. She is also chairman of the surgery department and adjunct assistant professor of surgery at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Beth is going to be with me every week talking about all of the wonderful work she's doing uh, in the area of integrative medicine with her foundation and with many other um, activities that she's involved with as a surgeon. Beth, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm really happy to be here. And uh, I have to give a quick shout-out to my operating room staff because Monday's my surgery day, and everybody was on time, and our patients did beautifully. So the entire OR staff at Holy Redeemer gets kudos today because this was, uh, you know, it's a whole new uh, chapter in our life. Um, I've done radio before, but that was always on Saturdays. So now it's about kind of making sure that my uh, day runs really smoothly. And uh, I'm really happy to be here with you because I think we have a lot of great things to do together in our future. I, I do as well, Beth. I, I think that each and every week we're going to be touching on a lot of different topics that certainly pertain to wellness. But I think also I just wanted to mention that one of the reasons you and I decided to team up uh, was was our belief that focusing on wellness is going to be a key role in women's pursuit of leadership. So that's kind of, you know, where where the tie-in is. My um, There was a, a saying from one of my medical missions in Haiti that I I say all the time, which is sante se richesse, which is our health is our greatest of wealth. And um, 
particularly it's a it's salient today because our guest is you know spent a lot of her life helping people build their personal wealth and to get to retirement and have money to spend but not be healthy and be able to live that life is certainly something that a lot of people don't yes, think about but our life is i mean our 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 health is so important to us that's right so so the other thing is at Holy Redeemer we have so many women in leadership and it just seemed like a natural fit that in a healthcare system where you know we you know the the our our motto is care comfort and heal female leadership is a huge piece of what we do in this health system so it just seemed to be a natural fit to to make women to watch part of us and you and I a team. That's right. And you know what? I want to make sure that I say thank you to Holy Redeemer Health System for bringing uh, you the show today and every day moving forward. Um, they are now a new core sponsor of Women to Watch, and I'm so grateful for the support and their belief in, in our mission, as well as their own commitment to health and wellness of women. So thank you to Holy Redeemer Health System, and welcome to our team. Well, I'm excited, and I'm very excited about today's guest as well, because I've been doing my homework on Sally, and uh, she is an amazing woman, and I've received several messages, text messages, emails from uh, people that, oh my gosh, you're going to get to meet her, and I said, well, I wish we were in person, but maybe someday that'll happen, but today we get to find out, you know, what drives her to be who she is. Yeah. Um, so for the listeners, I want you to all know that um, joining us today from New York is Sally Krawcheck. And Sally is the chair of Elevate, which is a global professional women's network, and also Elevate Asset Management. Um, Sally is a past CEO of Merrill Lynch and also Smith Barney. Um, Sally, we are so grateful to have you with us today. And I know that when, when Beth kind of tweeted out to the world and, and her own network that you were going to be joining us as the first guest today, she had a lot of uh, feedback from some of her own followers and women just really wanting to speak to you about your success, uh, about your career, and what what it was that led to the success and, and where you are today. Uh, what we're going to start with, as I always do, Sally, is, is your growing up years, because I think it's uh, an important piece of your story. And I'm wondering if you can talk for a few minutes about your years growing up in Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm so happy to be here and so happy to be here, uh, too, with Beth on your first day. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, wonderful. I think this integration between the two is so timely and, quite honestly, so modern. Um, so, Charleston, South Carolina, that's correct. Um, I, In fact, um, I'm, I'm thinking about home a lot today because it's my younger brother's birthday. Yesterday was my older brother's birthday. And it's hard not to think back on growing up in South Carolina um, in the 60s and the 70s and into the 80s in what was a very close, close-knit family. And part of the reason we were close is because um, we were so close in age. My, the age. We had four kids in our family. Age difference between the oldest and the youngest was three years and 11 months. No twins. 
Um, so you can see I had young parents who were obviously very much in love, and we were a, a close-knit family. I, I actually don't usually tell people this, but, but what the heck. I mean, one bathroom, no lock on the door. Um, so we were, we were a young family and one that really loved each other very much growing up um, and was really encouraged by our parents to excel and by parents who made a lot of sacrifices. Uh, my, um, you know, South Carolina having a public school system that, you know, was not top of the country, uh, my very young parents went into very big amounts of debt in order to send the four of us to um, the private schools in the city because it was the best they could do for us. And I have a lot of gratitude for them for the sacrifices that they made and a lot of a sense of responsibility to them as well. Um, Sally, one of the things, you know, you're talking about your family and your parents in particular, and I know that your dad um, had a huge impact on you and in helping to build the confidence that you have had that's enabled you to, to be successful. Can you talk about your relationship with your dad for a moment? Yeah, I love my dad. Don't we love <laughs> my dad? You know, I read somewhere along the way, because I am a research analyst by training, that one of the most important relationships, if not the most important relationship a professional woman can have is with her father, and that if he gives her the confidence as she's growing up that she can succeed, that confidence stays with her her whole life. And so, you know, the moment the moment that I always remember about my dad really giving me the confidence was when I was in third grade, and I had to get glasses. I was in an all-girls school. I already knew I was supposed to try to look attractive. Um, and I remember I remember not wanting to get those glasses, standing behind my sister as she read the eye chart to try to memorize it because I knew I couldn't see it, failing to memorize it and coming home with Coke bottle glasses, yellow tinted. We're talking the 70s here, yellow tinted, <laughs> and just crying because I, because I didn't want them. And my dad said to me, what are you crying for? And I said, I've got these glasses. I don't want them. I, I, w I don't want to look ugly. And he said, well, I've got glasses. And I said, but I'm a girl. I don't want to look ugly. And he said, sweetheart, look at Gloria Steinem. She has glasses. She's beautiful. And she's changing the world. I can barely tell that story without getting goosebumps because in it my father told me, that, you know, this beauty, you know, I could be beautiful. No matter what I look like, I could be beautiful. And that he thought there was a woman out there who he approved of who was changing the world. And, and that, for me, captured so much of it. That's such a great story. And I'm surprised. Did you know who Gloria Steinem was at that age? I found out. I mean, he sat down and he told me. Now, by the way, every time I see Gloria Steinem, which isn't particularly often, but every time I do, I, I tell her that story. And I think she's at this point, just like, get away from me, lady. I know you're <laughs> Back off. Back off <laughs> no, I love it even more that your dad was the one that, you know, that yeah. used her name as a as a lesson for you. That's fantastic. Great. Mm. Um, Sally, tell me a little bit about what you feel. I know that you were a track runner in high school, and, and athletics, I think, is such an um, important thing for young girls to be involved in. It teaches so many different lessons. Mm -hmm. What was it that it did for you? Well, you know, it's interesting because you notice it was track, um, and it wasn't a team sport. You know, and part of that is because I went to an all-girls school for a while, then switched over to what had been the traditionally all-boys school, in part because I was getting bullied at the all-girls school. So we didn't have a lot of 
sports there. We just didn't have the, you know, mass of girls who were needed in order to, you know, have a field hockey team or something like that. And so I ran track because that was all there was in the spring. It was track or nothing. And I think, you know, in, in, you know, in comparison to what you're always hearing about, you know, how great it is to play team sports, and it is, you know, there was something about track which sort of led to a resilience. You know, what do they say? There's no, you know, if, if you're, you know, running long distances, there's no halftime. There's no timeout. There's, there's no stopping. There's no substitutions. And you get to where you, you find an inner resilience and an inner strength from running track uh, that I found has been helpful to me through the course of my life. Yeah, I, I bet. I, Sally, do you still run? Um, uh, you know, I still walk um, because I made a huge mistake and ran for a while in those shoes that aren't shoes but are like, you know, gloves. I yeah. broke my foot, and I haven't been able to run since, but I walk very often. Yeah, as long as we're moving, right? You have to do something right. that, that keeps you moving. I um, completely agree. Yeah. And I've had years when I didn't, and it, and it I felt it. Yeah. Um, Sally, you know, you just mentioned the, being bullied in school, and, and that is certainly a big topic of conversation um, today, everywhere. Um, what it, was that? I know that you were extremely um, academic. I'll, I'll say that you you received the Presidential Scholar, which is a really big deal. Um, and and one of my questions was, I wanted to know what what drives your um, your what motivates you to achieve the academic su- success that you have. And then I'd also love to know what what type of bullying did you receive, and yeah. was that related to you know the fact that you were uh, bright? Well, you know it it was interesting because it happened in middle school. Um, I had the glasses, I had the braces, I had the awful haircut. I was not particularly um, athletic at the time. You know, I was going through a growth spurt. I was the second to last. I was never the last. I was second to last chosen for the sports teams, and I remember the shame of it. I remember the shame of eating lunch by myself in the schoolyard, away from the other kids, being around the building. I remember the girls telling me, come out, there's a there's a boy out here, he wants to say hello to you, he wants to ask you out and going out, and there was a boy there, but he wouldn't talk to me, and having the girls laugh at me and mock me. Oh, uh, I can I can draw all kinds of pain from it. It was humiliating, it was constant, and you know what? My grades went down, and so I, during my lower school years, was, a, you know, an A student, if you, you got grades. Well, during seventh grade, my grades went down to C's, and, and I'll tell you, I tell the story about my dad, but the story about my mom, my mom pulled me out of that school. You know, she went in and met with the principal and so on, but there's only so much you can do. She pulled me out of that school, and she sent me to what had been the traditional boys' school where the academics were one year ahead of what we were doing at the girls' school. So my younger brother, whose birthday is today, he was doing the same work in sixth grade that we were doing in seventh grade. And, of course, my, you know, everybody said to my mother, you can't pull her out. She's making C's. And my mother said, watch. She pulled me out. She sent me to the harder school. And my very first semester at the harder school, I was number one in the class. You know, by having, by changing that environment, and I give her so much credit for that, and just found that in that more diverse group of individuals, 
you know, I was able to be myself and not be ashamed of being myself and, and kept that lesson with me. So what motivates me today? Look, part of it's insecurity. Part of it is sort of showing those kids, you know, look, I can do this. Um, but it's got to be, I think, sometimes that right mix of insecurity with the right mix of confidence. And, mm-hmm. you know, you tilt too far one way or the other, you have a challenge. That's right. That's right. That, oh, that's so interesting. I mean, I think often that we have experiences um, that that are behind our motivation but also you're right it should be it should be something that you do for yourself mm-hmm. um, not to prove anything right um right. i want to know um sally you had said that you believe and as we all do that that good things are going to happen when women are in leadership roles why do you what do you think is going to change when we have more women leading well, I'll tell you, first of all, what I believe in is diversity in leadership roles. Um, you know, so that means more women. But that doesn't mean all women. Right. Uh, because just as I've seen on Wall Street uh, that too many men, you tilt too far over to one side. I think too many women or too many, too many people of any kind with one perspective is not – Additive. It's not helpful, right? We mm-hmm. have teams for a reason because they're teams. And so what the research would show is that if we were able to have more gender diverse teams, the companies that they are in would be have higher returns on their capital, have better business results, have lower risk, have greater innovation have greater client focus. The research is very clear that gender-diverse teams are, you know, maybe it's not the cause, maybe it's not even a correlation, maybe it's just a coincidence. But research study after research study shows that gender-diverse leadership teams lead to better results. I worked in an industry that was not particularly gender diverse, and that was Wall Street. And I think all of us can imagine thinking about those big trading floors on Wall Street, rows upon rows upon rows of gentlemen working in them, that if those were more gender diverse, I bet we all intuitively know that the risk wouldn't have been as great, that the trading bets wouldn't have been as significant, that the financial leverage wouldn't have been as great, that the short-term orientation would not have been as significant. We know this intuitively. And the research backs it up. Sadly, on Wall Street, on this issue, we've gone backwards. Um, You know, corporate America overall has been pretty flat for a while. Wall Street is actually less diverse than it was before the financial crisis. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. I I wasn't aware of that last that last point, that it is it, le- less diverse. And it's, and it's counterintuitive. One would think, geez, you know, if those are the folks who got us into the challenge, you know, we should have different folks get us out. And you've seen that in Iceland. They you know, brought in women to help get the financial services industry out of some of the challenges. We, we've seen the opposite here. And, and, look, in some ways I'm a case in point. Many of the women who were senior at the same time as I was were case in points. Um, that there are fewer fewer senior women today than there were. Yeah. Interesting. Well, we're, you know, we're working hard to change that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, The The world of surgery has been the same way, too, where it was very, very gender biased toward men. And now we're seeing a, a big shift. There are more and more women applying for surgical residencies and, and you know, all across health care. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping that it's going to make positive changes as far as, you know, access and the level and type of care that patients are receiving. Well, that's great. Sadly, on Wall Street, it's going the opposite way. And part of it is because women look to you, – you hear, you hear back from young women, they look to Wall Street, and they're like, you know what, no thanks. Plenty of other ways to make a living. No, no thank you. Mm. Uh, you know, Sally, I, I understand you, you graduated UNC with a, a degree in journalism. Mm-hmm. And so um, 
obviously, I, I guess that was a, a, a path you had assumed you were going to take. Um, and when was it, you know, what precipitated your decision to become a research analyst? Well, I'll tell you, I graduated in 1987 um, and had some opportunities to go directly into journalism. But Wall Street was the place to be. It was a Silicon Valley of that day. And, and my thinking, quite frankly, you know, firstly was, geez, it's going to be easier to pay the rent if I go work at a bank for a period of time. And then I also thought, you know, going to learn some, you know, about something rather than going in as a journalist and as a generalist, if I go to learn about Wall Street, that could be an interesting thing to write about. It was only a few degrees from being a journalist, an investigative journalist, to being a research analyst. Research analysts and journalists do many of the same things, right? They pull together. I'm making air quotes with my fingers that your listeners can't see, but um, you know, it's they, they, you know, it's only a couple of steps from investigating, you know, building a case, getting the pieces of a mosaic together. You know, it's just building a story. That's my, my air quotes mm-hmm. um, from one to the other. And so, whereas a research, whereas a journalist doesn't use as much of the analytics and the model building, a research analyst does. And I really enjoyed that part, along with the writing and along with the engaging with smart people. So it was only a step or two from being a journalist to being a research analyst, in my opinion. Yeah, oh, I agree. I agree. It, it always is about telling telling the story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know Beth had a couple of questions uh, from some of her uh, followers and members of the foundation and patients. Beth, why don't you jump in with the two questions that you had for Sally from a young student? Actually, Morgan is, Morgan Dever works um, at Bank of America. Her mother, Lynn's a pediatrician who's an integrative pediatrician um, who I work with. And what was interesting is that when um, Morgan saw either on Facebook or Twitter that I was going to be able to interview you, it was an instantaneous, oh, my God, like she is the, you know, she is this person. And she's, she is actually part of your um, Elevate group. And right. she just said, oh, my, you know, I can't believe you're going to get to talk to her. So I said, Morgan, pretend that you're going to get to sit down and have coffee you know, with Sally, what would you ask her? And so it took a couple of days because she had to think about it because it's like she, it's a very important cup of coffee. So, <laughs> what, you know, I, I told her maybe a glass of white wine might get her a better answer, but uh, her, her question was, in this economic environment and job market where there's increasing, increasing evidence or emphasis placed on her work experience, is it is for her to go back to school to get an MBA going to be less of a requirement. So is is there more weight on the work experience or do the initials behind her name, you know, make a big difference? Yeah, it's it's so interesting to get this question. My it's so funny because my teenage daughter has been asking me a bit of the same question about college as as all of her friends are going through the college process. Uh, she's she's and they are asking how much does the name of the college matter? Does it you know if I go to Harvard versus go to University of, um, does it matter to get the job? Does it matter two weeks into the job? Does it matter six years later? For how long does it matter? And the it's pretty unanswerable, of course. What as I thought about going to business school, um, it was an easy decision for me. It was an easy decision because I was in investment banking at the time, and I knew I didn't want to stay in investment banking for forever. But I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, In fact, I thought I wanted to go back into media of some type, perhaps into publishing, um, or perhaps into marketing. And so I wanted to try on a bunch of different outfits. 
And the last thing you want to do is move from investment banking, take a job in publishing, take a job at, you know, XYZ marketing firm, take another job, take another job, and you're seven jobs into it, and, you know, you have this chopped up resume, um, but you don't know what you want to do when you grow up. So business school is a great way to take a bunch of different classes, a bunch of different courses, and figure it out. So I went to and worked at Time Magazine for the summer in between my years of business school. And it was pretty clear pretty quickly that they, they didn't particularly want me. They didn't offer me a job. They didn't have much. <laughs> well, would you believe they were already shrinking at that point, which, of wow. course, has continued? Um, and so that was clear to me. And then, you know, and then I slowly got to I want to be an equity research analyst. So I think it means more for folks who want to try on some outfits. It also can be meaningful for people who want to mature. And this is a question you can ask yourself. You know, do I feel like I'm, I'm on that path to adulthood or do I want to couple of years to mature more, learn some more things, try some things out, make some connections. It's an expensive couple of years out. One, because business school is so expensive. Two, because you're, you're getting yourself off a track. Um, you know, I don't think, you know, once, if you're in a job that you adore, if you feel like you're humming, if you feel like you got it, you know, I wouldn't take two years off in order to, to go to business school. I, I don't think you have to, but there's some folks for whom that time off and that break are exactly what they need. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the things that I saw when I was take, checking you out online, um, you made a lot of comments about the financial industry that have also been made about surgical and, uh, and medical residencies where we push and push and push these young physicians to a place. And the same thing in the financial industry where they're not sleeping, um, they're stressed because they're, you know, they're, they've got deadlines and, and all of the things that are placed on their plates. And so if you're in a business position and you do want to go back to school to get an MBA, um, it's almost impossible to do the two at the same time because the time element that's required for both would, you know, certainly end you up, you know, in the emergency room with, you know, some form of exhaustion because you can't sleep, eat, study, work, and do all of that yeah. plus have any kind of balance in your life. It's so dumb. It, it is so stupid. You know, you, you watch some of these, uh, you know, these companies, these careers, and it's all about FaceTime, and it's all about how hard you can work and how long you can work and how tough you are, even if those aren't the words you can use. And this is despite all the research that shows that, you know, working and working and working and working, does, it doesn't help anybody. It doesn't help the clients. It certainly doesn't help the individual. It is not where creativity comes from. The diminishing returns are so significant, and yet we do it because we do it. Um, and certainly those younger years at Wall Street, it's part of the are you tough enough? And that culture impacts the business throughout because if, you know, if some group who haven't been able to somehow prove their you know, toughness, you know, don't make it to year five, year 10, year 15, you know, the, the industry is simply losing out, and, and it can't be providing its best ideas for its clients. So it's an artifact of an earlier age um, that just hasn't fully let up its grip, and it's just, it's just it's hard to see any, anything positive about it at all. We've, we had the shift in medicine where residencies were cut back, 
and they, they the time frame was changed, which was actually better for the you know health and wellness of the residents. But we're having a little trouble now too because we get surgeons and physicians that come out and don't have the same level of experience, and we haven't added years to the training program. So I think that's another thing where you may just have to shift in perspective about you know how long it takes to learn something. Well, I think that's right, but I think new thinking about all of it and open-minded about all this. See, I think you can make that, you can, we can talk about that for medicine, but for Wall Street, like seriously, who, you know, who cares? You, you, so you didn't work on one more M&A deal. You know, right. it doesn't matter. Uh, but again, what, what is the culture of the industry leading us towards? And it's, it's led us towards, we've seen a very, a very macho culture. Right, I can't and, and burnout, very right? Open. Yeah, I can't imagine they were very open um, to having pregnancies during your, you know, during your very tough work time. Well, look, the, you know, my first pregnancy as an investment banker just wasn't doable, just wasn't. Um, and so I did take some time off when I had my son. Now, when I was a research analyst in a, and I was at a firm called Sanford Bernstein, which, you know, really was two steps away from traditional Wall Street. And, and I, I'd say with affection and love, you know, we were sort of the land of the misfit toys. I mean, we were, the, you know, the folks who didn't all graduate from the Ivy League, a fellow who they hired, you know, sometime before me had been driven, driving a taxi right before they hired him. Here I came off of maternity leave, not having gone to an Ivy League. I mean, we were the land of the misfit toys. I loved it. And we just didn't have that um, culture that it had to all be about FaceTime. The culture was it was all about the quality of your research. Um, was your research any good? And we would critique each other's research and talk about each other's research and debate each other's research and, and so on. And so it was a very intellectual environment, but at no point did anybody say, well, you know, you, you wrote this research, you know, at three o'clock on a Thursday. I mean, it's no good unless it's at 3 a.m. on a Thursday morning. Um, and, and, and so, you know, look. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. It, so it was just a different, it was a different firm. And without my really planning for it to, it enabled me to be successful as a young mother because it didn't have all that face time that so much of the rest of the industry had. Mm. You know, Sally, a, a lot of the work that you've done has been in, in turning around troubled businesses. And, you know, I wanted to know what your what your philosophy is in doing that, you know, when you first step in to take on that role. And did, you know, the troubled businesses that you saw, I'm wondering if, if a lot of them, it, it had to do with what we're, we're talking about right now, about, you know, the culture and, and burnout and... You know, oh, just no. and the scandal, no, no doubt about it, and yep. that all those things are related. I mean, I, I don't think you start off your your life and say I'm I, I turn around businesses. I'm I'm the one who you bring in when there's trouble. What did happen is that you know, having been a research analyst at Sanford Bernstein, um, then becoming director of research, then becoming the CEO of of that business, we took some. Um, I, I don't want to say controversial because I don't think we were big enough for anybody to care about us or think about us controversially. Uh, but we um, got out of the investment banking underwriting business. Um, now, I don't want to get into too much detail. I don't want to put everybody to sleep. But at the heart of it, if you're a research analyst and you're working for investing clients and you're also trying to work for investment banking clients, suffice it to say their interests are directly opposed to each other, that if one wins, the other sort of by definition in the, in the shorter term loses. If you're pricing a deal well for an investment banking client, then you're pricing expensively for that investing client. 
so we, I took a look at this, I and my team took a look at this, and we came to the conclusion that we were only going to work for one client, that we're going to get rid of this other stream of business, we're going to get rid of millions of dollars of revenue, and we were just going to focus on one of these sets of clients. Our, not only was it controversial because everyone else was, had the two revenue streams, even the clients themselves told us not to do it. They said, don't do it because then you won't make all this money from over there and you won't be able to invest back in us and you won't be able to hire the best people because you won't have as much money. And we said, you know what, we're, we're going to just focus on you, whether you want to or not. <laughs> wow. I mean, crazy. Yeah, that's amazing and to me. That is crazy. amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah, I feel like a dope. I mean, I'd go into these meetings and you, you'd be, you know, you'd be telling them something they're supposed to be happy about. And they said, I don't know. That, that feels very old fashioned. It doesn't feel modern. It doesn't feel right. Well, we did it. Our business was going, getting smaller. Our people were leaving us to go to, you know, more uh, well-compensating pastures. And lo and behold, in comes Elliot Spitzer, and this is back 01, 02, right after the NASDAQ crash. And he comes in, and they he revealed that research analysts in the industry had been saying one thing in public about the stocks they were recommending and, and other things in private, that they were not being fully transparent to their clients, that they were trying to play both sides of the fence. Well, our business exploded. I mean, we just, you know, the, we were shown that the strategy was the right strategy. The business did very well. And so it wasn't so much I started as a turnaround person. What happened is I started as a person who was willing to, with my team, bring the team along and have put in place strategies that were you know, perhaps controversial at the time. But made that, sense. That, yeah. That, well, I thought they made sense. Yeah. But, you know, it's easy to talk about it sitting here on a spring day. Like, oh, of course that was going to happen. It was scary. I, I got to tell you, my, my um, associate director of research and I, every Friday, we, you know, we used to say that the analysts would only quit on a Friday afternoon. Uh, somehow they, like, wouldn't quit on a Wednesday. They wouldn't quit. And Friday afternoon, she and I would sit in my office and wait for somebody to come and quit. And they'd come in and they'd say, you, you guys don't get the strategy. I don't want to be part of this old-fashioned firm. I'm done. Wow. But, and so now it turned out it turned out. But at the time, it wasn't so clear it was going to turn out. But, so I don't think it was ever, I'm a turnaround gal. What it was was, look, I'm willing to, to really research a situation, take a point of view, go against the grain, and ride it out. And that's what, when Sandy Wall hired me to take over Smith Barney and that troubled research business when Ken Lewis hired me after Bank of America taking over Merrill, that's what they were looking for. Who's the person who can see things differently? Um, and ride through volatility to get to good business results on the other side. Now, good for you, Sally. I, I love that. I love that part of your story. I really do. Um, listen, we're going to take a quick break for um, our sponsors, and we'll be back in just a moment. There are 365 days to schedule a mammogram. Today is as good as any. Holy Redeemer Breast Care makes it easy. We offer the latest technology like 3D mammography, an automated breast ultrasound that help find cancers in dense breast tissue. Plus, our same-day readings mean same-day peace of mind. Make today the day you schedule a mammogram. It's easy to request an appointment online at holyredeemer.com slash mammogram. Are you looking for something special to wear to an event, on a date, or out with the girls? Nevada is a Philadelphia-based luxury label designed for the effortlessly chic global nomad. 
are ready-to-wear and custom pieces, which include bridal wear, by the way, are inspired by artistry and travel. The line is intriguing and exotic. After all, fashion should create a sense of escape. So go ahead, escape with Nevada, and make a timeless impression. Please visit us online at nevadacouture.com. Everyone, welcome back, um, everyone, to this week of Women to Watch. I have uh, with us today Dr. Beth Dupree, my new co-host, who's going to be joining me every week from Holy Redeemer Hospital. And our guest today is Sally Kralchek. And um, Sally was talking all about uh, the, the beginning of her career and some of the challenges that she faced. And I'd like to get right into, um, Sally, your decision to, to buy uh, 85 Broads, which is now Elevate. Uh, this women's organization, a professional organization, and and what your goals are for it and and why you decided to take it on. Well, I'll tell you why. The the reason I decided to take it on is that having had a ringside seat at the Wall Street crisis and watching the impact that um, this had on the economy, I spent a lot of time over the next several years thinking about what could have been done differently, um, what, you know, what had been the causes of the crisis. And it was interesting because, you know, the conventional wisdom, it was greed. It was greed. It was greed. Got it. Greed. Right? And lots of discussion about greed. And, and yes, we, we, we agree with that. The second thing was, that was talked a lot about was the banks needing greater safety cushions, greater, you know, greater amounts of capital. And I agree with that as well. Those were the two things. Well, but this was a pretty you know pretty big crisis and i'm not sure it just came down to greed and to more capital and so i began to think about some of the things that i had noticed and and as we went through my history i've worked for a number of firms um and i've worked for i think more directly for more financial services ceos than anybody else on the planet directly for and so i've seen a lot of teams and as i began to think about those teams and which teams had been more effective and which teams had made some pretty disastrous mistakes the 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 idea of diversity of perspective background um personality experience kept coming up that those teams that were a bunch of folks who were just like the other bunch of folks, um, you know, tended to make more mistakes and that the diverse teams um, tended to make slower decisions but tended to make better decisions. And and I've had teams that I worked on which have been amazingly diverse and, and of course, I've had teams in which I've been the only female. There's a lot of um, research on diver- about gender diversity and so I dug into that. So, I came to the conclusion one thing we weren't talking about but that mattered was diversity of management teams. I then came across the now renamed 85 Broads, which is a global professional women's network, uh, tens of thousands of women around the world. And the way these two came together is, again, the research analyst and me came across the research that said one of the reasons that women don't make it as far through management and into senior roles as men do, one of the reasons, is because they don't have the positive impact of networking at as early a stage in their career. Whew, that was a mouthful. You know, what it means is networking is the number one unwritten rule of success in business. And that who you know is what you know. And if you, you know, now that you, you know, that we, we three know each other, 
you know, y'all will know, ah, I've got, a, I've got a question about Wall Street. Let me call Sally, right? Let me, let me talk to her. And so what, what happens is your network is your intelligence. It's, you know, the startup that's threatening your business. It's, the, it's learning about the young person who wants a job. It's learning about the board position that's available. It's, it's learning, 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 learning. And what our women were telling us is we'd like to have some help in forming valuable business connections. And so that's why, you know, as I went on my journey thinking about the causes of the crisis and then this Elevate Network came along, I thought this is a way I can potentially have an impact, sort of put, you know, put my time and effort where, you know, where I think it can really make a difference. And, and you know what, that is such an advantage. Uh, one of the things I think about often with, um, there are, you know, there's numerous women's networking um, organizations out there. But what I want to know is beyond the opportunity to network with women, uh, professional women that we get to come to know through these organizations, what can we do beyond that to kind of bring men into the conversation and have them be a part of these these conversations that we're having that enables them to see the value in bringing more women, um, you know, into the C-suites and, and on boards? Well, you know, I think these are con- these are what I call the courageous conversations. Um, and Ellen Shook at um, Accenture used this phrase with me a few weeks ago, and it stayed with me, right? It's, it's talking about this. And I'll tell you the truth is I've worked with a lot of guys. I've been the only woman on a lot of teams with a lot of guys. I've interrupted a lot. I've walked into a lot of rooms with a lot of guys talking about stuff. And I said, hey, guys, what are you all talking about? And <laughs> none of them ever turned around and said, oh, my gosh, Sally, hi. Us guys are talking about the business case for gender diversity. It never happened. Right. It never happened. And so, you know, if we want the conversation to happen, we've got to start it, and we've got right. to have it. And this is where I have such high regard for individuals like Sheryl Sandberg, like Anne-Marie Slaughter, like Hillary Clinton, put aside the politics, Kirsten Gillibrand, who are, st- who are using the positions they have built for themselves to have this conversation. So I think that's important. I also think that if we're going to wait for the guys to give us the hand, you know, we're just going to keep waiting. We're just going to keep waiting, right? And it's not because they're bad people. And I always say, I love me a middle-aged white guy. I just do. I've been married (laughs) to a couple of them. I couldn't love me. I mean, I adore them. However, and I, you know, I don't. I think they're out of all the men I've worked with, maybe they're two I don't like. Right? I like them. I really do. What you find happens is that they all get the theory of the case on why diversity matters. And I got to tell you, particularly under periods of stress, particularly under periods of stress, which is Wall Street all the time, every day, every minute. Anyway, they are going to pick someone to promote who's just like them. Just like, by the way, when I'm under stress, I always pick someone to promote who's just like me, right? And given that they are the majority, they're going to continue to promote individuals who are like them, particularly while they're under stress. And so if we wait, you know, if we say they're going to pick this topic up themselves, they're not. We've got to bring it up. If we wait for them to, you know, for it all to work out, because, you know, life's supposed to be fair, right? I mean, I went to school. You work hard, you get an A. That's what happens, right? It doesn't, no. it doesn't always happen. No. And so <clears throat> us having these conversations, you know, with ourselves, us mentoring younger women, us 
help it if we're on a board, helping other women get on the board, us, if we're able to, investing in other women's businesses, that kind of network, us, you know, connecting with each other, that's what's going to make the difference. It's not going to be waiting for the guys to, oh, right, let's, let's do that. Right. So, yeah. Sally, how do we get more women on Wall Street and get more women interested in the financial future of our country, of our economy? I mean, if, it's, if the environment is such that it's, it's, it sounds rather toxic at times, um, how do we get – how do we support women to go – I'm certainly not a financial analyst or yeah. have, have very little to do. I, I saw my accountant yesterday and almost had a heart attack. But um, besides that, you know, how do we get young women to have yeah. that – that skill set and that the moxie and the backbone to be able to walk into that you know organization and say I'm, I'm here to make a difference. Well, look, I think Wall Street um, has missed it because what women t- what what the research says is the number one reason men tell us they accept a job is money. Women tell us money for them is number four. Number one is meaning and purpose. Number two is the group of people I'm working with. Number three is the trajectory my career can have. But number one is meaning and purpose. And I I had a life of meaning and purpose when I worked on Wall Street. You know, I remember 9-11 and how in shock all of us were. And I was running Bernstein at the time and coming back and, and all of us saying, guys, what we're doing matters. It might feel like pushing numbers on a spreadsheet, but we are helping people plan their retirement, plan the financial lives they want to live. And there's going to be enormous market volatility. We have got to get in the office, get our heads down, and guide our clients through this. Meaning and purpose, right? Running Merrill Lynch, meaning and purpose, helping you know, families live the lives they want to, running Smith Barney, meaning and purpose. But if you, if you were to ask most young people what they think about, when they think about Wall Street, it is not meaning and purpose. It's money. And yeah. so Wall Street has missed a big opportunity to communicate about what they do in a way that resonates with half of the population. You know, so what do we have to do? Well, look, I got fired, right? Let's let's call a spade a spade, um, you know, for a, a bunch of reasons, you know, one of which is I worked to return client funds during the downturn when we accidentally, not meaning to, not because we were evil, missold products, you know, to individual investors. Um, products that our smart folks um, who weren't who didn't who weren't so smart in this case thought would decline a bit in a bad market and declined a lot in a bad market. I advocated partially reimbursing clients. I won that battle, mm-hmm. but was later sent home. Um, and so, if you know Wall Street's going to have that kind of you know reaction to folks who are thinking differently, it's going to be very difficult. Yeah, so true, so true, and I and I think that that talk speaks right back to the fact that you know the more that we're talking about this and uh, having these conversations, the the younger generation of women are hearing these messages. Um, I, I think it's something that's different from when we were all growing up. Uh, there weren't these organizations, there weren't mentor groups, there weren't kind of role models for mm-hmm. young women to be reading about and listening to. I think that's going to make a big difference. Yep. It was funny when my uh, my father wanted me to go into the plumbing business right out of high school because he said, why should I spend the money to go to college when I when I could actually start this business that he would help me start? 
And I said, Dad, it's not about the money. It's like I have to have purpose in my life. And, you know, I went into a different type of plumbing. I went into human plumbing. But I, I needed to do something that was going to matter to me because there are a lot, of, a lot of times I see patients when they're diagnosed with cancer, they finally realize that they hadn't been living their purpose. They hadn't been living their passion. And it's unfortunate that it took cancer to wake them up. And I do see that in, in individuals who've been very successful in business where they wake up one day and say, oh, my gosh, what was I doing? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Sally, one of the things you said I, I found so interesting was when you said that the highest return investment a professional woman can make is to ask for a raise. Mm-hmm. And I'd love for, you know, if the listeners, if there's somebody kind of sitting there contemplating that, what is the best way to go about it? Just do it. Just do it. (laughs) Look, it is, I I don't know a woman who enjoys doing this. I I don't know a woman who, who, I can't wait to go in tomorrow. I'm going to make my case. I'm going to lay it right out. You know, no. In fact, the research shows that when men negotiate, they are focused on winning. And when women negotiate, we're focused on maintaining a relationship. And so even when I've done it in the past, oh, what if I ask for too much? What if he doesn't like me? What if I? What if they yell? I mean, there's just like this whole thing that happens. But the anecdote that I always tell to try to capture the importance of this is that when I, again, when I was managing folks, and we'll go back to my Wall Street days, every year, I don't know that it was every guy, but every year almost every guy would ask me for raise. Every year, not a single woman would ask me for raise. And I think the whole time I was on Wall Street, not one single woman asked me for her bonus or for a raise. The whole time. And by the way, I had gender diverse teams, okay? Mm -hmm. And so think about it like this, you know, which is that, you know, we're towards the end of the year and Joe and Susie have both done exactly the same wonderful job. And Joe and Susie are both in for you know, a bonus of five, right? Bonus of five. And then Joe comes down, you know, the hall and says, Sally, I just want to make you aware I've done X, Y, and Z this year, and, you know, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z next year, and I'd like to make 10. So I secretly giggle to myself. Joe leaves. I call Robin, my head of HR. I call her down, and we laugh together over the fact that Joe is terrific. He's in for five. He wants to make 10. Fast forward where it's time to write down the bonuses. Never hear from Susie. Fast forward, time to write down the bonuses. And we say, well, I mean, he asked for five, ha-ha. I mean, asked for ten, ha-ha, he's in for five, ha-ha. Well, you know what? You know, he, he did make some good points. I'd forgotten he worked on this. That's very interesting. You know, I did see him the other day in his office. The door was closed. He was talking on the phone. I, You know, I know the guys down the street are looking for someone with Joe's, you know, abilities. Oh, God, I hate to lose Joe. But you know what? Let's put him in for seven. We'll remember it next year. We'll catch Susie back up and, you know, whatever. You never do, right? You never do. So you put him in for seven. And then I always say when I'm talking to a group of people, and how much will Susie make? The answer always comes back five. The correct Mm -hmm. answer, of course, is three. Because I've got a bonus pool, it was five and five. My bonus pool is ten. Just because I give Joe more does not mean my bonus pool goes up, right? And so you can quickly see what happens if he's asking for the raise and she isn't. And the numbers as they are today, if she is making seventy-seven cents on or seventy-eight cents on his dollar. Now, by the way, my old industry is fifty-eight cents. But let's say yeah. it's 77 cents on his dollar. If she were to get to his dollar, that's a 30% return. 30. Wow. Every year. Every year. 
Bonds are yielding low single-digit percents. The stock market last year had a good year. It was up 18%. You can't get a 30% return anywhere. And so I always say it is not right. It is not fair. You know, that this whole discussion we're having about, you know, women asking for more at its extreme is telling women to ask like men and act like men. And it's not right. It's not right. But until we get to a fair playing field, you got to ask for that raise. You have to. You have to. Well, Otherwise, wh- you're getting left behind. Yeah. Why do you, I just? Why do you think that there's still that um, that lack of, of confidence in doing it? You know, especially with with I women like yourself out there. I have it because it's because I, I am because we you know you hate to generalize about about people. But I'm talking about the research that, that women as a group tend to focus on the relationship and tend to focus on the person, not focus on themselves and did I get my fair share. And so I don't know. I mean, maybe that's wrong. Maybe the research is bogus. But the truth is I can tell you from experience it still happens. Yeah. Oh, I have no I'm doubt. I have it nego- I'm glad I haven't negotiated my contract now. So, Sally, you, you've helped me a lot. There <laughs> we go. My uh, boss might not like you, but... <laughs> Hopefully he's not listening. No, uh, I bet he is. I know. I know. I hope he is. Um, Sally, another question I had for you because there's so much talk today about um, women becoming entrepreneurs. I think you know, with the you know uh, the fear of what's going on with larger corporations and the economy, um, women are taking risks and in, in stepping out into their own businesses. But I think that sometimes we you know we have a big dream, a pipe dream about a business. And, and what it will take to be successful, and there's always a lot more going on. Um, and I wonder what you think about women as entrepreneurs, and if you see a difference in the challenges that women face in a corporate position versus being an entrepreneur. Yeah, look, it's it's all hard. Let's let's face it. But what I am seeing increasingly, so women today are starting businesses at two times the rate of men. And, again, when you talk to women and ask them why they're starting the businesses, it comes back to what we talked about before, which is meaning and purpose. And women are telling you that they are not getting that sense of meaning and purpose from some of the companies they're working for, and so they're starting the companies at which they want to work, right? Um, Yeah, sure, does everyone want to do financially well? Does everyone serve the customers? Yes, but women will tell you this is the company at which I want to work. Now, it's it's not easy. It's easier than it was. The cost of starting a business today is lower than I think it's ever been in, I don't know, history, right? You, you think about 20 years ago. If you wanted to start a business, oh, my gosh, what do you have to do? Go, you know, start get a factory and get people, and you got to make the widgets and the widget plans and the land and the marketing and the distribution. I mean, you know, or you had to, you know, rent a shop. There was a lot involved. Well, today there are many businesses you can start for very little money. There are many businesses you can start with a website. In fact, many venture capitalists would tell you they are struggling to put their money to work. Um, And so the cost of starting businesses is coming down. The culture around it is the support systems, one of which is an Elevate Network, um, you know, are really – sort of flowering and, and growing. So you're seeing women do this. Now Now that I've said all this, you know, what I always want to be careful of is everybody buying into the cult of, 
oh, I started my business. I wish I'd done it. For You know, it is such a paradise. It's so delightful. It's so freeing. Yes, I, you know, yes. That being said, I will. I tell everybody who asks that running my own business is harder than running Merrill Lynch. Um, you know, because I knew Merrill Lynch was big. It was complicated. There were, you know, lots of, of levers to pull, lots of complexity. But you know, I knew that the team and I, we could make a lot of mistakes, you know, before we, you know, ran Merrill Lynch in the ground. Well, when you're running a small business, it is cash flow, cash flow, cash flow, and you make a few mistakes and you are done. And, right. I, you know, I seem to try to make every mistake myself at least once or twice. <laughs> and I've made some, you know, the, you know, with the network, the first, you know, folks we hired to do the website just blew it, right? And, you know, we lost time, we lost money. I've, you know, I mean, and I could go on and on, but mistakes that you make that get absorbed in a bigger company can bring a small company down. Mm. Um, are you, so are you not, happy with your business? Are you happy running a business? Does it um, you, what's I. I would put it this way. I am fully engaged and fully awake. Um, my learning curve is steeper than anybody I know at my age. I, I talk to my friends who are back at some of the big places, and I am alive. It's really fabulous. I have, you know, but what I want to be clear of, I think the secret the real secret to the successes I've had is I have had fun every step of the way. I am grateful for every opportunity I've had. So I would not sit here and say, geez, you know, gosh, I was so miserable when I was at Citigroup. That's not true. It just isn't. I loved it. I tell people I loved my job so much I loved getting fired. I realize how fortunate I am. So for me, this is another extraordinary chapter. It's not a better chapter. It's not a worse chapter. It's an extraordinary chapter. You know, Sally, I, I think that one of the things that um, about you that probably helps with that is that you, you seem to not take anything t- just too seriously. Well, life is short, right? That's right. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, look, I've always found humor is effective. Um, and, and I can talk about it in, you know, it's an effective tool at work when you are the only female in a room. I mean, the number of times I would look around and say, 20 guys and me, again, um, there are a few different approaches one can have to it. And one can be deadly serious about it and struggle to be taken seriously and, you know, be sort of, you know, intense and tense and, and so on. You know, or there can be, in some ways, a recognition of the absurdity of the situation yeah. um, and the good fortune of a situation. So I think yeah, I, I brought humor to it um, because it, it helped to engage with individuals in the room and because I actually just enjoy life and, and think it's fun to have fun. But there's also underlying it is a full recognition that I am unbelievably fortunate. We mentioned at the, at, earlier in the show my terrific parents who went into debt to educate me. You know, it is a privilege to be in a room. It, you know, I don't sit in a room with 20 guys and say, oh, I'm so angry I'm in a room with 20 guys. I'm like, I am so lucky. How, how did I get to have these experiences? And so I think the humor comes bubbling through just through the pure sense of gratitude. I mean, we could have all of us been born in a different country, different circumstances, circumstances and somehow not to acknowledge that every day and take yep. joy in it every day seems to be a waste of a life. Mm, great you are advice. Humor, you're, 
your southern humor uh, that came out with a comment when you said, bless his or her heart, followed by the <laughs> negative comment. Right. I will be using that as the chairman of the Department of Surgery. I will be using that every single day, and I have to thank you for that because it is just perfect. Yeah. Well, for those of your listeners who aren't familiar with it, so this is, this is a southernism, which is that if you say the words, bless his or bless her heart, bless her heart, you can say anything after it. And <laughs> so, for example, bless her heart, she's a total slut, right? You can say that, you know. Bless her heart, she's the biggest jerk. And it just like, it doesn't stick to you, and you're just forgiven for it. So it's, you know, whenever you oh, hear bless nice. her heart, you know something evil is coming out that you have to forgive the person for. Oh, I love that. I love that. That's a great way to end this show. We actually, we're just about out of time, Sally. I want to say thank you so much for joining us today. Our our first live show together, Beth and I, we really appreciate it. And um, great advice, and you have a great story. Thank you. Well, good luck. It's so such a pleasure to be here in your first show. Thank you. Um, I know y'all are going to take you're, you're going to take it by storm. So good luck to both of you. We that's the Thank plan. Thank you so much. Thanks, Sally. Take care. Bye bye. That's it, everyone, for this week of Women to Watch. Again, uh, we were joined by Sally Krawcheck, chair of Elevate uh, Global Women's Professional Network, and thank you to my co-host, awesome Dr. Show. Beth Dupree. We did it. Thanks, Susan. It's awesome. All right, hun. Everybody have Talk a great week. Soon. Thanks so much. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.